Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the 8th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we are going to be looking this morning at verses 9 through 13. That's Acts chapter 8, 9 through 13, and you can find that passage either on page 1078 in your pew Bibles or on page 44 in your Acts journals. Last week in looking at verses 4 through 8 of this 8th chapter of Acts, we saw that despite very bleak appearances following the death of Stephen, God was continuing his mission of redeeming a people for himself from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Nothing will ever stop or will ever slow down or will ever thwart the forward progress of this kingdom and its all-glorious king. And in looking at that text last week, we saw just a few things about the gospel that truly should fill the child of God with a very real and very steadfast hope. Hope that we all undoubtedly need as we live out our lives in this world that has been so marred, so corrupted, by the effects of the fall. And the first thing we saw there was that the gospel raises us up above our circumstances. We saw that we are not to be swayed by the mere appearances of things. It appeared that things were very bleak for the early church after the murder of Stephen by the Sanhedrin. Saul of Tarsus, of course, then began his reign of terror persecuting the Christian church. He was there at the death of Stephen, consenting to the people stoning him, holding the cloaks of the very ones throwing the stones. Luke tells us that after after that, he went from home to home and he carted off Christian men and women to prison. Somehow, The apostles, we are told, were able to stay put in Jerusalem and establish a sort of home base there. And we saw that some of those who were fleeing from the persecution ended up in the dreaded land of Samaria. I'm not going to rehash the feud that the Jewish people had with the Samaritans again, but certainly we will acknowledge there was hatred that ran both ways between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. So it was a very unlikely place for these fledgling Christians to flee. The Jewish people avoided the Samaritans. They avoided them and their land at all costs. Even going so far as to travel out of their way to avoid going through the land of the Samaritans. Yet God in his providence drove some of them there. And one of those who went to Samaria was Philip, one of the Greek-speaking deacons who was chosen to minister to the widows earlier in chapter 6 of this book. And in Samaria, these persecuted Christians found things were much the same as it was in Jerusalem. Samaria, like the rest of the world, was suffering the results of a world desperately broken because of sin. Demon possession abounded there. There were sicknesses and diseases. There were sorcerers influencing the masses. 
There were those whose bodies had been left lame and paralyzed. And of course, there was hopelessness. And one would think that the that seeing that the effects were so much the same as in Jerusalem would have been a tremendous discouragement to these persecuted Christians who were running for their lives. It certainly appeared to be a hopeless situation. Fleeing one mess to run right into another. Perhaps they should just run on through Samaria and go anywhere else. But of course they did not. In fact, we see rather quickly that these folks that are fleeing Jerusalem are not at all what we would consider to be down and outers. They are not swayed by appearances. They live by faith. And Luke tells us that those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not see themselves as hard-pressed They did not consider themselves to be in a bad spot. They were not unfortunate victims in any of it. And they were most certainly not hopeless. But seeing the hopelessness around them, they shared publicly the glorious hope of Jesus Christ. In the face of all this discouragement, they just wanted to show the people Jesus They were encouraged to take the message of the gospel, not just to the world, but even and especially to their enemies. And beloved, I'm sure that if you're anything like me, and you you probably are, that's convicting to see, right? I mentioned it last week. It's really easy to preach to the choir. But to our enemies? That one hits us hard. It should force us to ask some of those difficult questions of ourselves. Who have we decided is not really worth our time? Who have we decided that we despise and we feel justified in it? The truth is everyone desperately needs to know the good news of Jesus Christ. That he came down, that he put on flesh and walked among us, that he was blameless according to the holy law of God. And though innocent, he went to the cross and he laid down his life for us. He took our sin, past, present, and future, and he paid the penalty in full. He died. On the third day he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the word of God blessedly tells us he now lives to make intercession for us. He gives to us his perfect righteousness you see this is the message that desperate people needed then and still need now and God in his providence through this fleeing through these people fleeing persecution took the message of hope the message of the gospel into the world which leads us to the second point last week that the gospel is the power of God to salvation These people did not lose hope. They did not run off and hide. They did not pass right through the Samaritan land. Why? Because they had been transformed through the power of God, through the gospel 
the glorious message of the kingdom of God. They run right into the midst of death and they give life through the proclamation of the gospel. And they do it because they must. Jesus told them they would be his witnesses. They would take his message of hope from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's work of gospel restoration begins in Samaria. They preach the gospel of Jesus and things begin to happen. The demons are now the ones engaged in fleeing. Diseases and sicknesses are healed. The lame rise up and walk. And the light of the gospel begins to shine in the midst of the darkness. And another another change occurred. It was that final point last week. Amid so much darkness and misery all around them, Luke tells us what? There was great joy in that city. The precious truth of the gospel and its effects upon the fallen brings great joy. Those who were dead in trespasses and sins are now alive forevermore in Jesus Christ. Sins are remembered no more. And those who lived in the grip of fear no longer have to live in fear at all. And the captives who have been freed rightly rejoice. Beloved, again and again we are reminded in the book of Acts of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it fill you with joy? I ask you again this morning, what kinds of things get in the way of our joy in Jesus Christ? You know, the devil is a defeated foe. But as my dad would say, he's no quitter. He still frustrates. He still loves to see us exchange our joy in Jesus for our innumerable, justified reasons to be miserable people. He gets us to chase plastic joys through the meager things of this world. Joy that's really no joy at all. And these things ought not be. We need to be reminded of who and what we are in Jesus Christ. You understand, we are children of the king. And this is no ordinary king at all. And in the text before us this morning, we'll be reminded once again of where we stand being united to our great and glorious king. So I'd like you to follow along as I read from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. Hear now the word of our Lord. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And Simon himself also believed. 
And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity we have each Lord's Day to partake in the ordinary means of grace, part of which is sitting under the preaching of the word. We pray that your spirit would attend that preaching this morning. I pray, Father, that you would give me clarity, that I would speak your word with confidence and boldness, and that I would speak the truth in love. We pray, Father, for all of us that hearing your word through the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed by that word, that we might live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this morning begins with one of those words that really ought to catch our attention as we read through the Holy Word of God. Perhaps you noticed it already. It's there in the opening verse of our text this morning, verse 9. The word but. It's meant to remind us that despite what was just said, there is something else. We use this kind of tool in language all the time, don't we? For example, if I ask my kids, did you clean the bathroom? What I want to hear is, of course we did, Father. I mean, after all, you asked us to, and we like nothing else but to honor you as our loving and good and kind Father. So we immediately complied with your very reasonable request. My kids are laughing. I've never heard that. What, do I, what I don't want to hear when I ask a question like, did you clean the bathroom, is one of these but statements, right? Or however statements. Dad, you know what? I really wanted to. I even had begun to collect all the necessary tools for the job, but then I remembered that there were other things I wanted to do more. That one's not so funny, guys, is it? We, we've heard those. And you know how it goes, right? Well, what is this but statement here in Acts chapter 8 referring to or relating to? Well, we looked at it last week. Philip preached the gospel in Samaria, Samaria, and the people began to heed his words. They saw clearly the power of God in the gospel and in the miracles being performed, and as a result, there was great joy in the city, as indeed there should be. But Philip was not the only one in town. Verses 9 and 10. But there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God. This morning, as we look a little bit closer at Simon and at Philip and at this city of Samaria, I want to point out to you primarily three things from the text this morning. First and foremost, we need to see here that this is not simply competing ideologies by two well-meaning and eloquent gentlemen for the benefit of the people. This is not a friendly debate. This is not a public discourse between friends who happen to disagree on matters of small importance. 
What we have shaping up here in the text is much bigger than that. This is a clash between two kingdoms. First and foremost, this is a clash between two kingdoms. Secondly, I want us to see very clearly here that this battle belongs to King Jesus. The battle belongs to the Lord. And finally, I want to show you there is only one kind of awe that will ever lead to righteousness. A right or a correct kind of awe. So first we need to see here that what is developing is really a clash between two kingdoms. As I already mentioned to you this morning, the devil knows that he is a defeated foe. He knows that there truly is no real competition between him and Almighty God. They are not two equally powerful, equally fearsome kingdoms. The kingdom of God is unrivaled by all other kingdoms, period. However, during this period of the already and not yet, this time that we are living in between Christ's first and second coming, Satan lives to frustrate those who are a part of the victorious, triumphant kingdom of God. He lives to frustrate the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we have this word but in verse 9. The great joy in the city after the preaching of the gospel and the working of miracles through the hands of Philip is not the end of the story in Samaria. Philip is not the only one there going after the hearts of the people. In fact, he's not even the first one there going after the hearts of the people. Simon the sorcerer is there and he's been there for some time. And we know some things about this Simon from the text. For example, we know he'd been there for a while, for a long time, Luke tells us. He had astonished the people with his magical shows of power. We know that he had told the people that he himself was somebody great. Someone worth their respect and possibly even their veneration. We also know how he was received by the people. Luke tells us they heeded him to be sure. They paid him some mind. They respected his gifts. They did not simply ignore him. They did not just blow him off as another smoke and mirror type of entertainer. They perhaps even feared him a bit. They were awed by him and his shows of power. Now let me just say here that church historians have speculated much about this man Simon. And it makes for some very interesting reading. Irenaeus believed that Simon was actually the father of most, if not all, of the Gnostic heresies that crept into the church. Others, like Justin Martyr, are quite certain that his power was the stuff of demons. That may certainly have been the case. However, I'm not all that comfortable swearing that those things are true. They have come out of many years of tradition and quite a bit of speculation. So I really want to stick, what I really want to stick to this morning is what we can know about Simon here in the book of Acts. And I think it's enough. We will be looking at him closely over the next couple of weeks. And I, I do think that we know enough here to draw some very definitive 
conclusions. Clearly, he was not there at this point of introduction on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. His message that he himself was someone great was no gospel at all. He had shown some form of power and left the people astounded and then he turned their awe into his own self-promotion and perhaps even his own profit. We'll see more of that next week. Simon had been telling the people that he was something great. Now, again, this is speculation, but I believe that Simon may have even gone so far as to sell himself as the Messiah to the people of Samaria. You remember, their views on the Messiah were a little bit different from their Jewish neighbors in Jerusalem. The real reason I would say that here, though, is found in the way that the people applied what Simon was telling them. Did you notice it this morning? Look at verse 10. Simon told them, I am someone great. And the Look at verse 10. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying what? This man is the great power of God. From the lowest of them to the highest of them. From the servants to the city officials, all of them thought that Simon was a divine man at the very least. And he was apparently not correcting that view. He is a selfish man. He's peddling false hope to the people of the city, all of it for selfish gain, fame, and influence. (coughs) He belongs to a kingdom to be sure. However, at this point of introduction here by Luke, it's not the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of self the kingdom of Satan, right? It stands opposed to the truth of who God is. It stands in opposition of the gospel, and undoubtedly, Satan had some real estate, if you will, here in Samaria. He had a foothold in this city. People feared his power. They placed Simon in an exalted place that he did not belong. Obviously, there are stark differences with Simon and with Philip. Philip does not promote himself at all. Philip is not in Samaria for the fame. He's not looking for a platform to build a monument to himself. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. The Greek word here that describes what Philip is doing among the Samaritans is euangelizomai. It's it's from the word euangelion, right? That's the word for the gospel in the Greek. It literally means good news, good message. This, This word here literally means that Philip is gospeling the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. He is echoing again and again the good news. 
He is heralding the glories of redemption in Jesus Christ to the people. And he's telling them, Jesus is the Messiah. That he came and he paid the price for their sin. That sins have been entirely removed if they're united to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Philip is preaching the gospel. The power of God unto salvation. And the gospel is moving many of them to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as all that they will ever need in this life. It brings us to the second point. Remember, these are two different kingdoms, as I mentioned to you at the outset this morning. This is a clashing between those kingdoms. But something odd should stand out to you right away about this battle. Do you see it? There really isn't one. A battle. Do you notice that here? The battle instantly belongs to the Lord. And what weapon do the servants in this kingdom wield so effectively against the foe? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The full counsel of the word of God. It's very interesting that after the ascension and those 40 days spent learning at the feet of the resurrected king, the preaching of the kingdom of God becomes more and more Christocentric. Jesus unlocked for his disciples the lens through which they were to study and understand the scriptures, and it was himself. And as a result, These men then pointed to Christ in all of the scripture. And when they did, hearts broke before this king and this kingdom. People repented and ran to the loving arms of the Lord. And notice the difference in the reaction of the crowd. They heeded Simon. They didn't ignore him. They paid attention to what he said. They perhaps, as I said, probably feared him and his power a little bit. But look at their response to Philip. Are they heeding the words of Philip? It was not just some new fad or some great new thing to him. They believed him. Do you understand the difference? They took Philip at his word. They trusted not so much Philip, but the truth that he was feeding to them. This is much more than heeding. It's a much stronger word, even in our language, let alone the Greek. Philip spoke the truth of the gospel in love, and the people ran to Jesus. It says nothing in Acts of his eloquence. It, it never mentions Philip's good looks. There's nothing here about him wearing the right and proper attire. He spoke of his favorite thing to talk about. The love of Jesus Christ, even for a wretch like Philip. And there really was no competition at all, was there? We find no one here wavering between the two kingdoms. Those who heard Philip through the power of the Holy Spirit by the grace of Almighty God had their eyes and their ears opened. And they belonged to King Jesus and they knew it. And you say, well, how do you know it was like that? Because they rose up and received baptism. 
They wanted the sign of God's everlasting covenant. They belonged to Jesus. Just as the waters of baptism carried away the filth of their bodies, so the precious blood of Jesus Christ carried away every single one of their sins, past, present, and future. And what did they do? They did what you must do. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. As anyone who receives life in the midst of death, they rejoiced. The battle belonged to the Lord and beloved, it still does. Do you trust him like this? Do you see the power of his word? Have you celebrated the gift of God's grace and the amazing salvation that he has given to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ this week? How about this morning? How about right now? Do you understand? This is why we come. To celebrate God's grace to us in the gospel and rightly to praise his name joyfully because of it. Are you filled with joy this morning because of the gospel? Joy that all the stuff of this life can't touch. If not, then you probably need to take a look at the wretch that stares back out at you from the mirror every morning. These Samaritans knew under the preaching of the gospel that what they really needed most was not another show of manpower. A show of power perhaps to make them feel safe. It might have astonished them. But it would never truly comfort them. And it will not last. And it certainly was not what they needed. The biggest problem in Samaria was not that there was not enough magic in the world. So Simon had nothing to offer. Their biggest problem, their greatest need was righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Simon had none of that. They needed to be righteous. But they of all people knew that they could not be. To break a single line of the holy law of God is to break it all. This room is filled with lawbreakers myself included. Lawbreakers from the moment we were conceived. Don't tell me about your record. I don't care about it. It's not your record that establishes your righteousness. These people knew they were filthy sinners and they needed to be made right. They were guilty. And they heard Philip when he said, Jesus is the righteous one who came and died and rose again that he might give that righteousness to you. Do you hear it, beloved? He will give that righteousness to you because it's also your biggest problem, my biggest problem. Do you believe that this morning? You say, oh. How do we know that? Well, the word of God tells us again and again and again and again. It never stops telling us. 
It shows you that God alone is faithful. What do you do in this exchange? You give him your sin and your shame. He takes them to the cross. He gives you his righteousness and you rejoice and stand in awe of him. In awe of God's grace. It brings me to our final point this morning. In the Christian life, do you stand in awe of the right thing? Because here in Acts, you can see both. Acts chapter 8, we can see the wrong kind of awe, and we can see the right kind of awe. Simon produced the wrong kind of awe in his followers. They were impressed with him. They feared him. They heeded what he had to say. They said after being taught by Simon, of course this man is the great power of God. We see it in his magics. There's power there. However, the power may have changed the power may have changed the way that they approached Simon. But nothing about Simon or his magic ever changed anyone's life except maybe Simon's. Made him a little richer. But no one else had a change of heart. They did not erect t- temples in Simon's honor to properly show their level of awe toward Simon. Beloved, it sounds to me a lot like what passes for so much of Christianity in our day. i got to dig in here a little bit, right? Our awe is broken. You say, well, how, how can you say that? Listen, we respect Jesus. We show honor to his house. We will hurt anyone that tries to destroy it. We come and we worship on Sunday and we will be back, you know, next Sunday. We speak well of him. If we have any wisdom at all, we're a little bit afraid of him. We we pay our respects and then we go right on living like none of it really matters. That's not all. Is that the king that is being exalted in this book? Of course not. And that was not the king that Philip placed before the people either. This is an awe-inspiring king. Seeing him will change your life. Or you don't see him. His enemies flee before him. He makes them his footstool. He speaks a word and the weather, in fact, all of creation falls into immediate obedience. Because it all belongs to him. Sickness, lameness, and demons change their very courses in his presence. He brings restoration with but a word from his mouth and his people speaking the power of the gospel in his name changes the world. And what do the people do? The people stand in awe of him and they worship. You say, how do you know they worship? They receive the sign. They want to be identified by his holy and wonderful name. 
They want to be united to his life, his death, his resurrection, and his glorious ascension. They want to be seated with him in heavenly places. They want more and more and more of him and less of this world's plastic power. They want hearts that have been changed. They want Jesus Christ and nothing else will do. Beloved, my question to you this morning is, do you? Is this what you want? Do you want Jesus and his righteousness more than anything else? More than your own selfish way? More than you want your annoyance and your petty grudges and your gossip? Even Simon himself was intrigued. Do you see that? He too thought that maybe he wanted it. We'll see next week where that led. But I'm asking you, do you long for it this morning? I fear the truth is that we see Jesus for who, truly is, for who he truly is when we have by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit got over ourselves. When we've given up on our being the center of the universe, when we've gladly walked away from having our own way all the time. When we've stopped being petty over nothing and started loving our fellow image bearers more than we love ourselves. That's not my word, that's the word of God. The gospel makes you aware of just how dirty you are so that you can see your need for the perfect cleaning of Jesus and his righteousness. Where do you stand? I'm going to tell you, sinners who know they're sinners run to Jesus. And hypocrites, they just keep moving right on from the gospel. They keep looking for another guru. They keep looking for magic. Play actors retreat into their own selfish little world of plastic joy and fake power. The appearance of godliness with none of the power. Beloved, what does the gospel reveal to you about yourself? You can answer it easily. What do you stand in awe of this morning? Beloved, my prayer is that it is nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness, which we all so desperately need. Amen?